adoption journey may seem overwhelming at first, but More to Love, an adoption podcast, is here to provide you with resources, experiences, interviews, advice, and tools to help guide you on your path to adoption. Hosted by a board-certified adoption attorney, this podcast shares the raw and real truths, the struggles and the triumphs, and the real-life family experiences that prove there is always more to love. Let's welcome our adoption expert and podcast host, Nicole Moore. Thank you for tuning in and listening to More to Love. I'm your host, Nicole Moore, and I have to tell you, this has been my favorite interview. I had the honor of meeting this incredible young man when he so eloquently shared his story and his wisdom at the Academy of Adoption and Assisted Reproduction Attorneys Conference. After hearing him speak, I knew my listeners needed to hear what I heard. Today, you will hear from adult adoptee Kyle Bullock as he takes you through the ups and downs and highs and lows of his experience as a transracial adoptee that got to experience the love from both his birth mother and his wonderful parents. He will share the helpful tools he learned along the way from his mentors, coaches, and therapists. You may want to grab a pen and a pad as he goes over some of his recommendations to both adoptees and adoptive families regarding communication, asking for help, and learning that sometimes it is okay not to be okay. I'm so happy to share this interview with you. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I enjoyed so much seeing you speak at the conference, and I think I was so drawn to your story because you don't hear many stories of such a positive nature where you have a positive adoption story, and it comes full circle in meeting your birth mother and her being a part of your life. Um, At the same time, not taking away from the beautiful life that your mother gave you, um, that adopted you. So, so let's kind of just start with sharing your story for our listeners. Where were you born? I was born in Peoria, Illinois, small little Midwest town. And did your parents know that they wanted to adopt? Did they have any biological children? Were they on a waiting list? Yeah, so my mom is an adoption attorney, and they knew they wanted to have kids, and I think adoption was something they really wanted to do. So when that time came for for them to want to have kids, um, they decided to adopt, and I I was ready for them. So do you know what type of relationship your birth mother had with them while she was pregnant with you? So there wasn't a relationship, as far as I know. She had me, and then she gave me up for adoption. It was open adoption, so I was able to, I'll be able to contact her at the appropriate age, but there, there was no relationship. But she knew, I've talked to my birth mom about this, she knew that I was going to reach out to her someday, obviously when I'm older. I guess now we can fast forward. I'm just trying to give our listeners a, a timeline. So at what point do you start asking questions about your story? I started asking right away. So I remember as early as kindergarten, I would ask my parents, you're white, I'm black, what's <laughs> what is that about? My my friends are asking me at school. I don't know. I don't know what to what to say to them. And they simply said, "Oh, well, you know, you were adopted, and we brought you into into our family." And kind of said, "You know, we'll we'll talk about it once you get older, so you'll understand." But they told me at a very 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 young age. I was very curious about that. Would it be fair to say that it was always kind of an a positive 
association with adoption in the early years? Yep. There, there was always that positive association with adoption. And we have a lot of people in our family who are also adopted. So it, it kind of runs in our blood. And This was a transracial adoption, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Did you feel any reverberations from your peers just being a different color than your parents? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And to this day, I still get comments, but it's few and far between when, when I was a little when I was a little kid. People would always say, oh, you know, you're Oreo. So you, you know, you're black on the outside, but white on the inside. And I don't, I, I hate that term. I said, no, I'm just, I'm just an educated black man. You know, skin color shouldn't matter. But yeah, kids would pick on me in grade school and middle school. I remember distinctly, and I, I didn't really talk about this at the conference, but I remember I would have my mom, since I got picked on so much and questioned about it, I would have my mom drop me off, drop me off a block away from school so then I can just walk so then kids wouldn't see me get out of the car with her. I know that hurt her, but I believe they had an understanding on on why I did it. Absolutely. And how young do you think that you started experiencing this? Kindergarten. Oh, wow. As early as wow. kindergarten. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because kids are curious, right? They they want to know what's happening in our world and why things are. And I had a lot of friends in grade school and middle school and high school, and they just wanted to know. And they also wanted to also find a, a way to, to pick on others. How does that feel? How do you how do you make sense of that in your head? You have to go to school every day and trying to live your life and do your homework and you know, play your sport. How do you move through that? That is tough because in kindergarten, you know, I didn't go to a therapist or anything. So it was mainly having friends that were, that didn't care about that. So I have two of my really close friends, Jordan. I've known him since preschool. And so he's like a brother to me. And so if I had any problems, I would hang out with him and I'd just forget about stuff. Also, I was heavily into sports. So any anger or questions I had, I would just put it into my activities or sports. I didn't really, I didn't really talk about it. So having the friend like you had just mentioned, that was kind of enough to counteract the kids that, you know, were picking on you or whatnot. Absolutely. He was and still is one of my closest, closest friends. And his family was always welcoming to my family. And, you know, we all hung out. So it was relieving to have that that outlet there. And would he stick up for you? Like if he saw somebody else calling you, just say Oreo, would he stick up for you? Yeah, I, I think he would. It, that didn't really happen that much in grade school or middle school because kids would just say it to me off to the side, not really in front of people, which is mm. a very interesting, interesting dynamic there. But I guarantee today if people you know, said something, then he would stick up and, and I would do the same. At that young age, what does it mean when someone says you're white on the inside? How did you interpret that? It doesn't compute to me. It's just a way for kids or, or young adults or whoever to make fun of somebody that's has a different upbringing. That's different. That's like me saying, oh, you don't have nice shoes on, so you're poor. Gotcha. So you received it as a jab. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You mentioned when you were sharing your story at the conference mm-hmm. about acting black or mm-hmm. acting white. Again, I'm not entirely sure what that means, but what did you think that it meant? And what did you learn 
that it meant as you got older? <laughs> That's a really good question. As a black male who has grown up you know, in a white family, but also has black roots and hang out and hangs out with black people, you have to adapt to every situation. So, you know, a lot of black people do this thing called code switching. So if I'm with my black friends, I talk a certain way. If I'm with my white family, I talk a certain way. If I'm in a situation with the cops, I talk a certain way. If I'm the barbershop getting my hair cut with a lot of black people, I, I move and talk a certain way. So it's, it's really... It's putting on a performance. I hate saying it like that, but for each, you know, each setting that we're in, right? So I, I know if, if you're at a conference, you're speaking, you're, you're going to speak in a formal way and, and whatnot and present yourself a certain way. But what if you're out with, with your girlfriends for a drink, you're going to act or talk a certain way. Well. Absolutely. If you even take the race card away, people do speak differently, just as you said, deter like depending on who the audience is. Yep. That they're communicating with. So did you come to a point when you thought acting white was associated with privilege and education? To be very honest, Nicole, I have never thought about it like that. I think when people do say, oh, you're you're talking white or talking black, I just say, I just say, yeah, I'm I'm just an educated black man. And did you come up with that statement? Yep. And how I guess has that the ability to just say that and to, you know, I imagine when you said that as a younger black man and, and then, you know, now you have different feelings associated with it, right? Oh, yeah. So it catches people off guard. When I said it when I was younger, it caught a lot of people off guard because they probably assumed or thought that I was going to be confrontational or say something out of character. Defensive, defensive. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But now, instead of saying that, I, if someone says, oh, you know, you, you talk white, I said, so what, is, what does that mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? I oh, yeah, I turn it right around. I say, oh, I remember saying this. I worked at Apple and I remember saying this to somebody who's like, you know, you talk white. And I was like, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by talking white or talking black? Is it offensive to you? It used to be. Now it's just another it's another thing because now I now I know how to spin it. Let's dig into what what you're really trying to say. Well, I love how you then put them on the spot to not so much embarrass them, but really to make them aware of the word choice that they're Absolutely. saying. Because words are powerful. Words are extremely, extremely powerful. And so now I want people to really understand what they're saying when they say some stuff. And what it might be received as, right? Because I also think their intentions may or may not be how the message is received. Absolutely. So what does that look like when you come home in middle school and say, mom and dad, people are calling me an Oreo and they're saying that I'm black on the outside and white on the inside. Did you, I didn't, did you I didn't tell them. You didn't. Okay. I didn't really open up that much as a kid. Is that just like a teenage <laughs> thing? It is, is it is 1,000. Nah, I would say it's probably 60, 70% a, a teenage boy thing. Like we, and, and on top of that, and on top of that, I'm adopted. So I, I'm, all, I'm also dealing with all these other identity issues and, and thoughts and such. So I didn't want to burden my parents. They're already worried about school, my grades. I just thought, you know what, let me just, let me take this on myself, put it to the side and then, and then deal with that whenever I need to deal with it, which ultimately just made me even more angry. So you were trying to almost protect them from yep. the hurt that you were experiencing. Correct. And as you look, how old are you now? I am 31 years young. So as a 31 year old educated man, Mm -hmm. If you were talking to a transracial adoptee that was struggling, 
Mm-hmm. Would your advice be to speak up? Absolutely. I'd say speak up or find somebody that you can talk to, whether that is a friend or a mentor. So you weren't telling your parents that was your choice. Mm-hmm. Were you telling anybody? No, not even Jordan, a really good friend. So you keep this in this box inside yep. of you. And when does it decide that it's going to explode? Uh, probably around when I was 14 or 15. That's when, you know, I'm dealing with sports. I'm dealing with girls. I, I have all these hormones and things bouncing around. I'm a teenage guy. You know, there's just 50 million different things coming at me at one time. And I can't, I can't manage it. Freshman year was okay. But then sophomore year was really when things were, were not good. And what does that look like? If a parent is listening and mm-hmm. they're assuming that everything's fine because their child's not saying things are not mm-hmm. fine. What kind of behaviors were you experiencing that could mean I need help when a kid's not coming out and saying it? I was just angry. At least, I mean, every kid is different, right? But I was, I was just angry all the time for no reason. I hung out by myself a lot. You know, looking back, my grades slipped. That might be very minuscule, but that's something where a parent can say, you know, why are your grades slipping? What's going on? Are you doing well in school? I didn't really hang out with my friends that much. I just wanted to be by myself, and that was part of it. Did you end up asking for help or speaking up, or how, how did you get some relief from that time? I remember just arguing with my parents all the time all the time it seemed like and you know just calling them names saying you know i don't want to live with you all these very hurtful things and then my dad suggested that i go to therapy and so he said you know i've, I've gone to therapy and it works and i said um, you know whatever fine i'll do it um very begrudgingly but i went to therapy for a little bit and that really helped being able to talk to somebody and them being neutral or even asking questions like even asking questions that i didn't really think of that was extremely mm. important and if there are listeners and their their kids are kind of going through the same things that I am, therapy would be would be a really good option. Because, I don't know, kids don't really want to open up to their parents sometimes. <laughs> that's, that's the nature of the game. That's the nature of the game. I love that you can share the benefit of therapy oh, because yeah. I am a big proponent of that and talked about that on the podcast before. You have to be in a position where you can receive it as being helpful. I think that so many people, especially young kids, see a stigma. So what did you take away from therapy to help you kind of feel more comfortable in your skin? A very simple phrase, and it's it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to have these feelings. It's okay to be angry, sad, mad, whatever that might be, and that there are people that do care and will listen to you. Even if it's not your parents, There's there are people that will listen and want to hear your story. So if you had went to them and said, mom and dad, like I'm really, these are the, this is what's going on in my head and I'm struggling. Can I talk to you about it? Then they would have been completely receptive, but for you weren't in a position to do that. One, 1000%. I did. And they would do anything. They would do anything they could to, to help me. Right. I just want our listeners to get that idea because I think sometimes as parents, we think we are doing all we can. Listen, honey, you tell me if, if you need to talk, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. And then you know, mm-hmm. oh my mm-hmm. gosh, why didn't you come to me? I had no idea you were struggling internally so much. And, you know, I hear that struggle regardless of you're an adoptee or transracial or not. You know, I just know that teenage kids, even if they have parents with the best intentions and open door communication policy, right. 
like you said, for whatever reason, you wanted to protect them or not burden them and you just decided to keep it in. And, you know, looking back at my situation, we don't sometimes when parents are like, you know, you can tell me, you can tell me that kind of that pushes a kid away sometimes. I don't know why that is. Maybe they're afraid of their parents reaction. They want someone neutral to, to speak to because parents will then give their advice and everything. Mm. And it's it leans one way. Whereas if you go to someone neutral, they can give you multiple options and multiple things to points to think about. So did you perhaps fear like, okay, well, even if I opened up, like they're going to have, you know, they're just going to want to fix it. And of course they can't understand because they didn't, they're not mm-hmm. in my body and they're not experiencing my life. So how would they even understand? And like, oh, they won't get it. They won't understand. Like, I don't know why I need to talk to them. Obviously very naive and small minded, you know, reasons, but they could have helped me. So describe the racial uh, makeup of your neighborhood that you grew up in. I lived in a, when I think about that neighborhood, I lived in a predominantly white neighborhood, but some of my closest friends were, were black. So Jordan, he's mixed. My close friend, Darion, he's black. And so I could ride my bike from my house to Darion's house. I played in a basically all black baseball team. So my dad, yes, I lived in a predominantly white neighborhood. I could have played baseball in this neighborhood, but my dad wanted me to have black people and black culture in my life. So he put me into a all black league. Okay. So that's where I was kind of heading with that. You kind of read my mind. So I had interviewed somebody recently and she said, you know, I want a black dentist for my transracial adoptee son. And so I'm going to drive an hour farther than we have to just to give that to him. And I want to go to a special barber. Um, Did you have those black influences in your younger years? Yeah, I did. My main influence was my baseball coach. His name is Peter McFarland. And he coached me from when I was nine to 12 in baseball. Major influence. Very, very well well known and respected in the um, black community in, in Champaign. I would go to a black barber. It wasn't the same barber every time, but they knew who I was. So there were times we could just talk about things that I can't necessarily talk with my parents about. So I, d- I did have those influences. And then in middle school, I had a, a wonderful teacher. His name is Brian. And so all of that helped along your journey? Yes, I believe it did. It let me be myself. Let me, let me be free and not really think about, oh, I'm black, but I have a white, white parents. I didn't really think about that. Yes, I would get questions from a lot of black people, but it was mainly, oh, is this your dad or is this your mom? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm adopted. And so that's, you know, that's that. And they're like, okay, cool. Let's play baseball. Like, it was it was really, really, really nice and relieving. So does the white kids have more of an issue with it than the black kids? In my experience, yes. At what point did the interest to learn more, arrive. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to know who my birth mom was. As soon as I knew I was adopted and they told me the concept of adoption, I always, in the back of my mind, I I always wanted to know. But what really kicked it off was after going to therapy when I was about 14 or 15. You just start asking questions about adoption and and what do I think about it? And am I curious to find my birth family? And I yeah, I am. I I really want to know. And yeah, when I was about 15 or 16, that's when I really sought out to to find my birth mom. And did you discuss that interest with your mom and dad? Like, was there a conversation that said like, hey, will you support me, you know, finding her? Yeah, I think it was very short lived. It was maybe one or two times, but it, it wasn't anything long. I kept that card very close to my chest because I knew I wanted to find her. I just need to find the right the right time. How did you get the information you needed to find her when you began to search for her? I just asked my mom. 
I said, hey, mom, you know, what's my birth mom's name? And I believe I had my, I had my birth certificate too. So on the, she had her name on the birth certificate. So she showed me that and it's like, great, that's all the information I need. So you didn't have any contact information, email, phone number, address. You just had the name. First name, last name, and then where she lived. And so take us to the day that came the day. So we, it starts one day before, but we were watching this movie called, and I, I feel all, all transracial adoptee families should watch this movie called Antoine Fisher. And so we watched it and I won't spoil the ending, but it's a must see. By the end of it, I was bawling. I was crying my eyes out. And I knew in that moment that I was going to find my birth mom. So my parents went, to st- went upstairs and I kind of sat there on the couch that I was sitting on and thought about how I was going to find her. And then the next day, my parents went to church. And before they went to church, I said, you know, I want to find my birth mom. Dad, can I use your laptop? And basically, he said, yeah, yep. So I stayed home from church. I went on MySpace because that was really big back. I logged onto MySpace and I typed in her name. And three people popped up. One was an African-American woman hanging on a palm tree, just leaning there smiling. Another was a white lady. And I think the third woman, she was mixed. And so I thought, you know what? I'm just going to message the first one, black woman. I'm going to message her see what she says. And so I say, hey, my name is Kyle Bullock. I was born in 1990, August 13th in Peoria, Illinois. Are you my mom? <laughs> Just flat out. I don't like beating around the bush. Even to this day, I don't. And I hit send. And I waited, I waited. And about 40-ish minutes later, she messaged me back and she says, yes, I am. And so from there, it was oh a good roller coaster of emotions and feels and, and, and all those all those things. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is just the serendipity of how it's the first person. You had only a name. You went out there. Are you my mom? You know, you have older adoptees where they don't have as much information to search for. And so it is harder to find. I was very, very fortunate and lucky. Sadly, not every situation is going to be like mine, unfortunately. It won't be as easy. The outcome won't be as great. But I just have to say that because I know a lot of people are, a lot of people reached out to me from doing that NBC adoption video. And they asked me, you know, I want to find my birth mom. How is it going to be? All this other stuff. And I say, well, look, it's, I was a very, very blessed and lucky person and my mom Mm -hmm. Thank God she was willing to meet me and, and have an open adoption. So I got very, very lucky. Yeah, I love that you you put that out. So for our listeners, Kyle and his family was featured on an NBC show regarding their adoption story. So he certainly got many, many calls and, and people reaching out. And sadly, you know, when you and I discussed it, I mean, there's going to be people where you, you don't find them. They're not on MySpace anymore or do find them and they don't want to be found. They're not open to responding. I mean, the sun and the moon and the stars, you know, obviously Mm -hmm. aligned for you that day. And where do you go from there? Corresponding with your birth mother. From there, I want to know everything. So I want to ask all the questions. I want to dig into her life. Any question that you can think of, I was asking it. I wanted to meet her as soon as possible, but she was in Iraq at the time. So obviously I couldn't just hop on a plane and <laughs> and go meet her, but I was able to have that chance when she, when she got back stateside. So when your parents come back from church, was it like, hi, how was church? Great. Oh, by the way, I found my birth mom. <laughs> yeah, a little FYI. It was, it was that quick. I think I said, I found my birth mom. 
And what was their response? They were happy. I think that was a missing piece that they really wanted me to find. Obviously, I think they might have been a little nervous too, because, you know, I find my, my birth mom. And so maybe they had thoughts of, oh, is he going to want to move with her? Or or does he want to stay with her and get to know her more and, and kind of push us away? But I would always say to them, you know, they raised me for 15 years. You know, they're my parents. I love them dearly. I have no reason to leave and to go live with my birth mom. I, w- I want her in my life, but I don't, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to leave you. Right. So did you feel anxiety about, because you obviously came from a place where you loved them dearly and you wanted to protect them from some of mm-hmm. your earlier childhood pains. So did you come from a place of worrying about their reaction and how you didn't want them to feel less than or not appreciated. Yeah, it's again me worrying about my parents instead of having my parents worry about me. I just wanted to make sure that they were comfortable and I wanted them to be a part of my life with my birth mom. And did you say things that to reassure them that this was like not what you said, that that, that you imagined all these things that they might fear? And did you feel like you had to reassure them to Mm -hmm. say it's not that, but it's just finding out is this missing piece looking back i don't think i did but i believe my actions said that itself it was always very respectful and and open and honest it was i want all of you guys to meet i want all of us to hang out that's why i wanted and that's why i got talk us through the first time you got to meet your mom i played basketball in high school i had a game in a neutral ground we met her my mom drove there i went on the team bus and so both moms met at the gym and one mom sat down the other mom sat down and i showed her a picture and they know what each other looked like and so right when they sat down they sat next to each other and started talking and i was just excited because i had a little brother too my little brother devin so i was just excited to see them in the flesh and see okay that's my that's my birth mom and, and half brother I asked you a question at the conference and I was surprised by your answer. And I think most people, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I would have assumed that this question would have come up. And it was so interesting to me that you said, no, I I, I never did ask. But the -hmm. question that I asked you, because you had shared, you had a million questions and you were going to ask every single one of them. Did you ever ask her why she placed you? And I asked you that because certainly she had another son that she was able to parent. And I wondered if the thought ever came across your mind and you said that it just, it was never one of the many questions you asked. Yeah, it wasn't. I My adoptive parents, they told me very early she had you when you, she was young and adopted and all this stuff. And I said, okay. Back then, maybe I didn't really understand or get it, but I sure do now. You know, she, she was very young when she had me. And when I look back, 15, 16 year old, there's no way I could have taken care of a kid. She did one of the most selfless things a, a parent can do. You go give up your child to, to get adopted by another family. Um, that's you extremely did. hard. Yeah. That, and that goes to your parents being open with you also and explaining and explaining that. So I, yeah, I think I think it's important to know also to the listeners that you don't have to tell your kid everything right away. I think it's in baby steps when they're ready or when they start asking questions. Obviously, it's, it's your judgment. It's I'm not your parents of your kids, but it's up to discretion. I wonder what your life would have been like if when you had asked as a teenager that morning, Dad, I want to find my birth mom, if he said, listen, son, we support that and we know her name and we're happy to help you find her. We want you to meet her, but let's wait till you're 18. I would have done it anyway. (laughs) I really don't like that rule. And I remember my mom saying, you know, you can't find your birth mom until you're, uh, this was before, you know, everything kind of happened. And she said, you know, you have open adoption, but law permits that you can't find your birth mom until you're 18. Like, oh, okay. 
that's fine, whatever. But then when I start going through these problems and, and issues, identity issues and questioning a lot of things, I needed to find her. I think it's such a good message because regardless of what state you live in, there's different laws surrounding that, right? And then you have reunion registries too. But Mm -hmm. if adoptive parents know how to contact a birth mother, if indeed they have that information, I I think it's safe to say that this is a story where giving your child the information when he or she asks and not making them wait until the suggest, yeah. Oh, I mean, mm-hmm. who says 18 is the right age? Right. I mean, we, yeah, we let kids drive at 16. Why yeah. can I not, why can I find the mother who birthed me and I have to wait until I'm 18? And all that healing, I feel like. Oh, I mean, yeah. When you tell your story, it seems like a lot of the healing and feeling better about the situation kind of came together after meeting her. Absolutely did at like one one thousand percent. I said this at the conference, but say you're doing a oh the puzzle, yeah, like a three thousand puzzle, right? And you're putting all the pieces together, and it's complicated, and there's a lot of wrongs, and there's some rights. Okay, great, I have this corner piece. Okay, excellent. And then you have one piece, and you're trying to look for it, and it, the puzzle isn't complete. The picture isn't done, and then you finally find it. I found it at, you know, 16, put it together. There is my masterpiece. And I think your story is just so captivating. Again, because not only did you get your puzzle piece, but you got what you wanted, which was not only to know who she is, not only to meet her, not only to learn about who she was as a person, but to invite her to be a part of your life and current family relationship that you had built. Mm -hmm. To see you all together functioning as a group of people that love each other. I think that is the most touching thing that I took away from your story. And how awesome would that be for everybody to experience that? And I wish every adoptee could experience that. What would you say to the ones that hear your story and are inspired to reach out and don't get to find their missing puzzle piece? Talk to me. <laughs> I'll be. I'm, no, I'm serious. Talk to me. I'm certainly open to talk to people about this or talk to somebody. Therapy. I will always say therapy. But know that there also might be. If you can't find your birth mom or your birth parents, you most likely have cousins or aunts or uncles. And so maybe trying a different avenue that way. But I guess always know that there is someone to talk to you about things. Did you ever have the opportunity to speak to a transracial adoptee when you were growing up to feel like, wow, this person has already walked this path? No, I knew one or two. One was a good friend in high school, but we had completely different experiences. Didn't really have anybody. How would that have changed those years? I think it would have made me more comfortable. It would have made me less angry because there's someone that I know that's going through the same thing or has gone through the same thing as I did. I mean, 1990, not many people were doing transracial adoptions, right? So I, from what I know, was kind of the beginning of that snowball. Did you feel alone? Oh, absolutely. All the time. I felt like I am the only one in this. Great. If I'm the only one, that I'm going to have to take this on myself. And that's part of the reason why, mm. I, kept, that's part of the reason why I kept everything um, close to my chest. And that was a big thing. No one would understand. And you want to be that now for other adoptees, right? Absolutely. I want to be that person that can say, hey, I went through this. You know, this is what you can do. Or I can help you find your your birth mom or, or whatever. Or if you just need to vent, you go to your therapist, but you want somebody who same identity or sort of black man can speak to me. Let's talk. Because my therapist was white. So he could align with me on a lot of things, but you know, racially things that would happen that 
I just couldn't really talk to him about. So if someone's listening today and they say, I'm feeling like I'm the only one, I'm feeling like Kyle, I didn't even know how to put it into words. And and he basically just put into words how I'm feeling. How can a listener reach out to you? So you can send me an email, Bullock. So my last name, BullockKyle0 at gmail.com. You can send me a Instagram message, KB underscore 2090. I always, I always have my trusty handy dandy phone with me. So people who say they don't have their phone next to you, they're lying. I always have my phone with me. So I will answer as quick as I can because I like to be prompt and I, I like to be in the moment with people. So please reach out. I would love to do a, another podcast or speak at another event just to help people feel more comfortable. So Kyle, as we wrap up, what is the message that you want our listeners, if they hear one thing, from you today. What is the message that you want our listeners to leave with? I'll start with the adoptees. It is okay. It is okay to feel the feelings that you're feeling. It is okay to be angry. It is okay to be not okay. Know that there are people who care and love you. And there are people who will be open and want to talk to you about these things. And I'm one of those people. To the parents, I would say if you are, if you had already done transracial adoption, ever child, be patient because there's going to be a lot of questions come your way. If they haven't already, when they're teenagers, be even more patient because they might drive you up the wall, but there's going to probably be underlying factors because of that. And then to the parents who are thinking about doing a transracial adoption, understand that it is a lot of work and adoption, you you have to make sure that you will love this kid with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, because a kid will understand very quickly if they're not loved. And if it's a transracial adoptee and you don't love him, it's, um, it's detrimental. And I don't want that to ever happen. So be mindful. I love those messages. I want to ask you one thing. I've been working with adoptive parents for almost 17 years, and I know that these folk, the love question is is not even there. I mean, they would literally give a body part in order to have a child to love. And I know that a lot of them say, I don't see the color. I don't care if the child's purple with green horns. I just want a child to love. I don't care. But is that enough? Even though they don't see color, the world does. Right. Yep. It's it's not enough. Um, If you don't see color, Great. If, if that's what you truly think, okay, let me take you to the south side of Chicago. I'm not bashing people who say that. I'm just saying you have to be knowledgeable, especially if you adopt a transracial adoptee, because they're not going to look like you. You will get stares. And eventually, you know, people, your, your kid's going to eventually say, you know, why are they looking at us? But I think that one of the messages I learned from you is even though it doesn't matter to you, it's going to matter to me as the adoptee. And you have to understand that my life will be different. I just love all of the aspects of your story, Kyle, because it's not a perfect story without hardship. I thank you for your vulnerability and sharing the hard parts about it. But I also am just so comforted by here you are sharing, I had the best upbringing. I had a wonderful family. And oh, by the way, I, you know, I got to include my birth family in my life as well. It's a very good story. And I'm very fortunate, blessed and lucky that that all of that happened. Now, were there hardships? Were there problems? Right. Oh, absolutely. No good story is <laughs> right. just happiness. Right. Comes right. without the really, really oh, yeah. tough, tough parts. And that's, I think, what makes it such an inspiring story, Kyle. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of More to Love, an adoption podcast. And speaking of love, there is always more to go around. So if you or someone you know is going through the adoption journey, please, please, please share our podcast. 
Help us spread the word by liking us on Facebook at Jeannie Tate PA, connecting with us on LinkedIn, or following us on Twitter. As a reminder, this podcast is not intended to, nor does it, create the attorney-client privilege between myself, guests, contributors, and or any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. So thanks again for joining us. We cannot wait for you to join us next time on More to Love.